welcome, Neil, and a beautiful segue there, Devin. Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is hell. The Soviet Union was a brutal prison state epitomized by massive gulags and far-off Siberian, uh, far-off Siberian camps where prisoners were forced to work in mines and extractive industries that supplied the government with the slave labor and natural resources the nation depended upon for its very survival. We were reminded of the Soviets' brutality in the Sunday New York Times this weekend which ran a front-page article yesterday with the headline, Along Russia's Road of Bones, Relics of Suffering and Despair. And if the words Road of Bones do not attract your eyes to that article, I don't know what will. The story described how prisoners were forced to make the road that would take them and their future counterparts off to the gulag. Yes, the road to the far-off prisons was actually made by the prisoners themselves. These stories are stark reminders to us all of how the Soviet Union could only stay in power with the backing of a police, prison, and carceral state that threw millions behind bars and into mines, many of whom did not survive. At its peak, the gulag system of camps and colonies of Soviet Russia, well, it's estimated to have held about 714 to 892 people per 100,000 who were living in the country. The only thing that comes close to that kind of Mass imprisonment is the mass incarceration we see in the United States today, with 698 of every 100,000 people in the country incarcerated as of 2018. And when you add in all types of incarceration and detention from juvenile to immigrant to home detention, the U.S. surpasses the proportion of the population imprisoned in what was experienced by the gulag-loving Soviet Union. No, our detention facilities are not quite as cruel as the Soviet's gulag system, but you gotta wonder what it says about whatever it is we call democracy when we have to imprison more people than the Soviets did, especially when we've been taught that the gulags were the only way the Soviets stayed in power, with that many people packed into U.S. prisons and amount of imprisonment never seen before in human history that it should come as no surprise to any of us that when the coronavirus outbreak happened earlier this year, these packed institutions, whose health care has been decimated by austerity, became sites of protest, sometimes small with a few hunger strikers demanding PPE and to be socially distanced from their fellow prisoners, sometimes massive, huge uprising against how the system was dealing with the virus. We'll learn what happened inside prison walls when the virus hit the states in a few, when we have the return of writer and researcher at Perilous, a chronicle of prisoner unrest, Duncan Tarr. Duncan is on today to discuss the Perilous analysis, first 90 days of prisoner resistance to COVID-19, report on events, dates, and trends. You can find out more about Perilous at PerilousChronicle.com, and you can follow Perilous on Twitter at Perilous Prisons. Duncan was on back in March 2019 when we spoke with him in Nur Us Sabah about their 
Commune Mag article, the end of the line, on the northern Midwest crumbling pipeline infrastructure. You can find that conversation at thisishell.com when you search on Duncan's last name. That's Tar, T-A-R-R. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show, it's Monday, so it must be Daphne Agosin. Daphne, how was your weekend? Um, I want to offer something, though, because my weekend was just reading finals. Finals are still happening. I liked your, your whole estimation at the beginning by just saying, how was your weekend? Uh, <laughs> it's pretty much how everybody's weekend is throughout 2020. Yeah. So you had a question? No, no. I'd like to offer that uh, if you're looking for a um, space with natural light to read with some heating um, during this time, you can take a bus and yeah, just find like a bus. And I was reading in the morning, headed here, and it was so great. And it was outside of my house. <laughs> it's because there's nobody on the bus? Yeah, there's nobody on the bus. And <laughs> um, and it's like natural light and heating. And uh, it's so hard to find these days. <laughs> I was actually wondering about you getting here the other day. And I was thinking about you taking the bus. And I was wondering if there's much there's many people who actually... I know that bus is not a high-traffic bus. At one time, they were thinking about ending that bus line altogether. So is, do you see anybody else on the bus? Yeah. Yeah. Not that um, many, though, right? No, like five people, maybe. That's it? Yeah. That's awesome. That's very <laughs> safe. I'm feeling even more safe now. I was kind of concerned about you taking the bus than coming in here. <laughs> My weekend was, as always, too short, but... I've been looking forward to the uh, upcoming four-day holiday weekend for far too long, even if this holiday will be unlike any other for that any of us have ever experienced, even for those of us who are daring to travel this weekend, no matter how much we try. This holiday will, is not going to be normal. In fact, for far too many of us, this holiday will be deadly, and some of us who are traveling this weekend will not be around to see the next holiday, and that one's only like a month away. So, well, enjoy your Thanksgiving. See, we told you so. This is hell. More importantly, Daphne, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This this week's question from hell is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? (laughs) What are you trying really hard to not think about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell winter cap. You can check out the new Graham Black This Is Hell winter cap and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thank you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Wednesday's show. We are not doing a show Thursday. We are only doing shows Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week. But we are still doing a Patreon podcast on Friday. So we must have your answer in by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Daphne will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, the question from hell is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? Leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio or email me, chuck at thisishell.com. Thanks to everyone who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the weekend. If you go to thisishell.com and click on support, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell, including how to get any and all of our This Is Hell swag. Thanks for their support. This weekend goes out to Samuel P. Richard L. Chris T. Israel R. Beth Y, and a former producer here on This Is Hell, the first producer ever of This Is Hell, other than me, 
Andrew, thanks to all of you for your incredible support. Again, Samuel, Richard, Chris, Israel, Beth, and Andrew. Again, if you want to support This Is Hell and be thanked on the show like we just did with Andrew, Samuel, Richard, Chris, Israel, and Beth, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Daphne has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not coffee. According to an article at mash.com headline, you shouldn't drink coffee to cure a hangover. Here's why. Um, Per the website, Got Purple Tree, coffee could actually make your hangover worse. The site notes that while there have been studies that suggest caffeine can alleviate some of your hangover symptoms, its key ingredient, caffeine, uh, can also cause more stomach irritation and further dehydration, making you feel even worse. Furthermore, it notes that both alcohol and caffeine work as diuretics, which causes you to urinate more and lose more fluids from your body. I'm just trying to get you to say urinate and vomit as much as possible on the show during the hangover. I appreciate it. Sure. <laughs> Additionally, caffeine is known to raise your blood pressure, which got purple tree says could compound your hangover headache. Harvard Health also concurs, also concurs that while coffee is a stimulant and may make you feel a little peppier, when you have a hangover, it will further deplete your body of fluids. That makes this week's hangover cure not coffee. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, exactly. I drink a lot of coffee and uh, yeah, it doesn't really work. Putting profits before people since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits. You can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. Sure, you can go to thisishell.com, click on support and see the winter cap, face mask, t-shirt, trucker's cap, tote bag, whatever, Emanuel, enamel, steel camping, This Is Hell coffee mug, or the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive uh, containing dozens of interviews from the past 20 years. But you can also become a subscriber to This Is Hell's Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can now find over 150 Patreon podcasts right now. It's like an additional year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we continue to our series of playing interviews from right around 12 years ago, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, to remind us all of what people were thinking and saying the last time a member of the Democratic Party became president, to save us all from what we were told were the horrors of the Republican Party and conservatism. So we shared our interview from just a few days after President Obama was inaugurated when we spoke with Kenneth Saltman, who is currently Professor of Educational Policy Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Ken was on back in January of 2009 to talk about an article he had co-written with past This Is Hell guest Henry Giroux titled Obama's Betrayal of Public Education, Arne Duncan and the the Corporate Model of Schooling. Ken explained how Obama's Secretary of Education had supported privatization and charter schools in Chicago and how he would participate in the dismantling of public education. And as Obama promoted the bipartisan consensus on privatizing schools that has hurt public education and lined the pockets of billionaires, many fear his former vice president, Joe Biden, will do the same as president. And in my monologue, exclusively on Patreon this past Friday, when you, where you can hear it now at patreon.com slash thisishell, I explain why I have gone from virus fatigue to full-blown virus fear as COVID-19 has entered the building within which I live 
and has set up residence one floor beneath me in the respiratory system of my neighbor. And I am freaking out, especially after hearing about our neighbor's rather fatalistic view of the virus. I, you know, you're either going to get it or you're not going to get it, right? Am I right? Am I right? Yeesh, that kind of fatalism is not good for public health. But again, you can only hear all that if you subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you're going to want to hear this Friday's Patreon podcast as I declare war on all of the holidays. And we will be sharing an interview with a former House Judiciary Committee member that impeached President Richard Nixon on why President George W. Bush should have been impeached but was not and why he hasn't why he wasn't uh, impeached she'll explain that as well and these are all important very important things to remember as w's approval rating among democrats is currently around 60 percent 60 percent approval rating for a suspected war criminal makes you wonder how much democrats will be approving of donald trump's presidency in 12 years Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to Zachary and Peter. Zachary and Peter, thank you very much for being our latest subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Capitalism is the virus and this is hell. We got a couple of emails at chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, you can send, that's where you can send your thoughts, your suggestions, and criticisms in the show. Martin wrote to us about our Election Day interview when we celebrated democracy by discussing anarchism. Martin writes, Dear Chuck, I just wanted to let you know that based on our interview with her a week or two ago, I'm currently reading Hadass Tear's book, A People's Guide to Capitalism. All I can say is, wow, this is what capital should have been from the start. Easy to understand, accessible. I'm blown away by her accomplishment. I sincerely hope you share this email with her so I can say thank you. She deserves all the accolades in the world for this. And I think I may have read this actually on Friday's show or Thursday show. This may have been the only email that I got around uh, mentioning on the show. I just wanted to mention it again because that interview that we did with Hadass Tier, she was absolutely spectacular. And we have had so many people contact us in the past saying that they would like to read Marx, but they just find it completely inaccessible. And I and I totally understand that. So if you do want to read a more accessible version of Capital, if you will, read Hadass Tier's book, A People's Guide to Capitalism. So thanks, Martin. And uh, we look forward to contacting you in the very near future as you showed some interest in doing remote work for us as well. We also got an email from Adam who wrote to us at chuckatthisishell.com. Adam writes to us about producer Richard Norwood's suggestion that everyone check out the incredible catalog of films the Chicago Public Library not only has in their DVD collection, but streaming at their website so you don't have to depend upon Amazon or Netflix to get streaming video. It's cheaper and you don't have to give money to a huge corporation. Adam concurs, writing, like Richard said, check out the streaming platform Canopy, that's just the K, Canopy, through your public library, whether you are in Chicago or elsewhere. On more than a couple of occasions, I followed up on This Is Hell episodes by watching related documentaries on there that I'd imagine are hard to come by elsewhere. My favorite one I saw recently was about the Zapatistas, which was prompted by the replay of your interview with Manuel Callahan from 20 years ago, a replay that you played on Patreon. Thanks again, Adam. So this holiday weekend, Adam, when I'm not freaking out about my neighbor having the Rona, 
I plan on digging through the Chicago Public Library's website and the Canopy platform because I, too, am sick of Amazon and Netflix. And finally, we got a DM via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio from Pat saying, Hi, Chuck. My brief comment here is, I watch Deutsche Welle for my news these days, the German national broadcaster. Oh, and they report that Germany is actively going after far-right extremists in their police force. Yes, Pat, even Germans are doing a better job at rooting Nazis out of their police force than the U.S. does. Germany is actually better at fighting Nazis than the U.S. Think about that. And I will second Pat's recommendation. Do not watch U.S. national news. Watch Deutsche Welle or France 24 or CNN International or even BBC News. But stay far away from U.S. national news as all it is is Christian nationalist corporate propaganda meant to promote a system of exploitation as common sense. Finally, Ivar emailed us to ask if we're going to have an update soon from Brazil and Brian Muir. Ivar and everyone else who enjoys Brian's appearances on the show, we will definitely have a report from Brian before the end of the year. Maybe what we should do is get Brian to give us a year in review of 2020 from Brazil. But yes, Ivar, Brian will be back on the show and very soon. If you want to send us your guest or topic suggestions, criticism of the show, both constructive and destructive, send them to chuck at thisishell.com. We'll likely share your thoughts on air unless you explicitly tell us not to, in which case we'll, of course, honor your request. Again, send us your emails to chuck at thisishell.com. Tweet us your comments at to at this is hell radio, or you can send them via Facebook, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Coming up on This Is Hell, an analysis of the prison protests that happened across the United States during the early months of the pandemic. We will also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests, as well as having, well, share some of your answers to this week's question from hell. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. The pandemic has revealed a lot about the world, and here in the U.S. it has revealed a lot about the states, including how we treat prisoners and those who we have detained and hold without any criminal charges. It's a stark reminder of the old Fyodor Dostoevsky quote, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Here to help us gauge the degree of our civilization as revealed through our prisons during a pandemic, returning to This Is Hell, writer and researcher at Perilous, a chronicle of prisoner unrest, Duncan Tarr. Duncan is on today to discuss the Perilous analysis, first 90 days of prisoner resistance to COVID-19, reports on events, data, and trends. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Duncan. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Duncan was on This Is Hell back in March of 2019 when we spoke with him and Noor Sabah about their Commune Mag article, The End of the Line, on the Northern Midwest Crumbling Pipeline Infrastructure. You can find that conversation at thisishell.com when you search on Duncan's last name, Tar, T-A-R-R. And you can find out more about Perilous at perilouschronicle.com. And you can follow Perilous on Twitter at Perilous prisons. Let me just start with uh, something, a uh, statistic that you bring up in the report. The report states when the pandemic spread to the U.S., it found a society structured quite oddly, as few in the history of the human species have been. Huge amounts of the U.S. population live in cages, a condition dubbed mass incarceration, in which 698 of every 100,000 people in the country were incarcerated as of 2018. This vast carceral network has few historical analogs. The best comparison is the gulag system of camps and colonies of so 
Soviet Russia that at its peak is estimated to have held about 714 to 892 per 100,000 people living in the country, as award-winning essayist and critic Adam Gopnik has pointed out. If you include those under other forms of correctional supervision in this country, such as probation and parole, that number nearly triples, far surpassing the levels achieved even by Joseph Stalin. The United States' rate of incarceration is unprecedented in human history, in global history, worse than what it was of the gulag states like the Soviet Union. How aware, Duncan, do you think the public is, the U.S. public, that the U.S. imprisons more of its citizens than any nation ever? And if they did know, do you think that would make any difference? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that, I mean... For starters, I think that, uh, you know, when we talk about the U.S. public, we have to also think about that, like, the U.S. public is in prison or has family members in prison or has family members working as guards in prisons or, you know, so I mean, we're talking about a, a massive number of people and, and um, that massive number of people, of course, are going to have connections that are not just prisoners. Of course, there's, you know, there's the actual prisoners, there's actual people on probation and parole and on e, on what's called e-carceration, you know, the ankle bracelets and but um, yeah, this is, I mean, all those people have family and they're, uh, they have spouses and children and, and cousins and parents and grandparents. And I mean, so I, I think there, for starters, I think there is a lot of awareness about the scope of this thing. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think, I think since, since the rise of mass incarceration in the seventies, I think there's a, you know, a, a consistent like bipartisan effort to uh, paint uh, the abstract idea of a criminal as, as disposable. And I think, um, uh, I, th- I think that's changing. I think it's sometimes changing for, for maybe, uh, not, not the best reasons, but I know like, for example, the libertarian right is, uh, in Michigan where I live is trying to also close prisons because they're trying to shrink the state budget. But, um, I think there is, there is a, a sea change occurring. I think since the 2008 financial crisis of, um, this this massive massive system that you just described is not uh, it's not tenable in the long run. And I think uh, among many other things, I think the current uh, COVID crisis has has given has made that sentiment even more urgent. Yeah, I just want to point out real quick, uh, Duncan is in Lansing, the capital of Michigan, where all the protests were happening against Governor Whitmer that we've been discussing a lot on our show, because I spent five years in Lansing as well. You write that the report uh, states on March 17th, prisoners at two separate facilities on opposite coasts of the U.S., a, a county jail in New Jersey and an ICE detention center in California, organized protests in response to the outset of the COVID-19 crisis. On that day, those incarcerated at Monterey County Jail jail in California and at Essex County Correctional Facility in Newark, New Jersey, organized a food strike and a hunger strike, respectively. The ICE detainees in New Jersey knew and told the media that they were engaged in a fight not only for our freedom, but also for our health and safety. What was not yet apparent is that the protesting prisoners were organizing one of the first actions in what is now clearly one of the most massive waves of prisoner resistance in the past decade. First actions, you write. Back in April 2018, there was the prison uprising in South Carolina's Lee Correctional Institution, which ended with seven prisoners uh, dead in the deadliest uprising in 25 years on August 21st of 2018, little over four months later, and timed with the 47th anniversary of 1971's Attica uprising, a prison strike broke out across the U.S., a strike that would last until September 9th. I only bring up this recent history because I'm wondering to what extent 
are the protests that started in March of this year in any way connected to or a legacy of that 2018 national prison strike movement? Is this part of one bigger, larger, growing movement and not just due to the pandemic? Uh, that Yeah, I, I think it would be hard to answer definitively, but I think there are some concrete ways that this there is a, there's a sense that the prisoner movement in the past decade is is growing and building and learning and uh, uh, yeah I, I think I think I think that it, that for sure is true because before 2018 there was on the 45th anniversary of Attica uh, in 2016 on September 9th there was a national prisoner strike and um, and for sure the one in 2018 was directly building on and uh, sort of revising some of the tactics from 2016. For example, instead of putting it all on one day, September 9th, the one in 2018 basically made it, uh, you know, the organizers said it was three weeks, so there's a little bit of flexibility for prisoners. So it started the day that George Jackson was assassinated, August 21st, and ended September 9th. So I think in this way, between 2016 and 2018, there's for sure this building um, and then the pandemic hits. I, I think it's a little bit trickier. And we talk, uh, we mentioned this in the report too, of just communication across prison walls. It's, it's uh, the way that happens is really diverse, but it's, and it's, it's totally possible. These walls are of course porous um, for communication, but also for the virus. Um, but the, I mean, the way uh, information and strategy circulates around prisons is, I mean, it's, I don't think, for the for some prisoners, I mean, they will know how it happens, but it's it's hard to say for sure. It's hard to say how much people inside know about um, the history of prison struggles. Certainly, some of them know, like the whole history, because they, uh, you know, they're studying and and researching. But basically, I think I think it's a mix of both. I think it's like there is this like definitely like organized movement of of prisoners involving um, you know different religious groups or different like more political groups like jailhouse lawyers speak. And they for sure are aware of this legacy, but I think a lot of people in there during the pandemic, I mean, maybe they're in there, maybe they were just detained by ICE, or maybe they are in a county jail just for a short amount of time. And maybe like they're not sort of this long-term prisoner who's like studying the prisoner movement. And, and then they're the, whatever is, whoever is locking them up is treating them terribly. So they're gonna, they almost don't need the, the legacy of the prisoner movement to know that that's wrong. It's to know that, they shouldn't be in there and that social distancing is impossible in these facilities and that they're not sentenced to death, but yet they're dying. So I think it's, a, I think it's both basically. Cause I think it's, there's a common sense response that these people are expressing, which is like, they do, they do not deserve to die these preventable deaths. And if the legacy of the prisoner struggle is there sometimes is also not there sometimes. When the report describes the methodology of your analysis, it states limits we would not, we could not control included media coverage. What other research projects decide to report on, as well as efforts at obfuscation on the part of prison administration and other carceral bodies? How much is what happens in prisons essentially censored by prison administrators and what could be considered a complicit media and how I guess what I'm really asking is how little do we know about what happens in prison and to what degree do you think that affects the way the public often embraces law and order politics and a lack of concern for those who are incarcerated yeah I I think there's 
the two parts of that are, of course, related, but um, different in my head. Uh, like the the media coverage of of prisoner movements is like I guess that's like that's particularly what the Perilous Project is is interested in. I think because there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of amazing research on uh, on prisons and incarceration and uh, and it was something like the 2018 prisoner strike, which we've already talked about. Uh, there was massive, massive media coverage. I mean, there was like international media coverage of this event, and deservedly so. I mean, this is a very impressive event and important event in the history of the prisoner movement. Um, there was, and there, there uh, fortunately, there was a, a spotlight shown again on prisoners organizing against COVID uh, earlier this spring and summer. And that is useful, but um, yeah, I, I would I would argue comparatively to the 2018 strike, the the media coverage was not as. Uh, I mean, there definitely was coverage of it. I'm not trying to dismiss that. I'm and I know at Paris we're really thankful for the journalists who like do focus on on these issues. But I mean, it was not this sort of like uh, bombastic international event that the 2018 strike was. Where part of our argument is that uh, this this wave I have spread over a few months. It's not just a three week thing, but it, the wave is 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 massive. And 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 to think of it as a single, not a single event, but this this a single wave of events that had similarities and learned from each other over 90 days. Um, and it's and it's still continuing today, by the way. But just our report is on the first 90 days. Um, we think we're we're trying to focus on and highlight it because we think it's a, a world historical event, and we think that it's it's. As as COVID is not only still here, it's actually actually gotten worse in Michigan, where I live. It's the worst it's ever been in the prisons. Um, so yeah, I just so the media coverage thing. I think that's what particularly we're passionate about at Perilous is this sort of like being able to highlight prisoners' actions and what they say about what they do. Um, yeah. So as far as the obfuscation on the part of prison officials, that's just. That's just the terrain we're fighting on. I mean, I don't want to. I just at this point, it's just like that's that's what it like the you know the the Department of Corrections are gonna they're gonna spin things like and uh, specific prisons are going to censor letters and they're going to if you you know do a interview on the on the phone there's like they're like and you're a prisoner you're likely end up in the hole or or face some sort of repression inside and. I'm not trying to be dismissive of this, but this is like that's this is the nature of the work we do. It's terrible. I mean, I I want I am a prison abolitionist. I think uh, there should be no prisons. Like there's nothing natural about prisons. I think they don't solve social problems. They just move human beings and create more problems. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I think anyone who's like tried to study prisons and whether that's from a academic perspective or activist perspective or journalist perspective. Uh, there's sort of the, they're like mini fiefdoms and the the wardens can kind of do whatever they want. Um, and at all these facilities, ICE detention centers, uh, county jails, it's like the censorship is just like, they can kind of do whatever they want. There's ways around it. You know, you can try to write letters in clever ways or communicate in other ways, but it's, yeah, it's 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 honestly really frustrating, but it's it's just par for the course, really. 
So if you go into a prison and you want to interview someone who is a prisoner who may have been involved in some type of, in any type of protest, whether he was a, a single protester or if it was a mass uprising, when you are doing that kind of face-to-face interview, you were talking about letters being censored and stuff being redacted from letters, but when you're doing that face-to-face kind of interview, it, I assume then that there is surveillance taking place from the prison itself. So how how honest, how forthcoming can prisoners be about protests that happen within prisons under that kind of surveillance? Yeah. Um, well, particularly to focus it back on this, on this report and the, and the COVID stuff, there's no face-to-face interviews happening. There's no visitation happening anywhere. Um, so that is not, that would be possible maybe during a different time, but it's not possible now. Um, and uh, I think a lot of I think a lot of what we do, because in addition to this report, Perilous also, you know, we write articles, we try to like break stories when we can. And we also uh, have published a series of more like basically podcasts featuring longer interviews with uh, participants in some of these rebellions that are in the report. Um, and those interviews are conducted over phone. And that is, if you know, if you get a call, if anyone listening to this interview with me now, you know, people know this, like, you get a call from prison, one of the things it says is that this uh, call is subject to, to monitoring. And that's, you know, that's the prisoner calling or the, the detainee or whatever facility someone's locked up and like they're, they are putting their, their safety on the risk to get these stories out. And um, how forthcoming can they be about the details? I think it totally varies. I think it's like, I think a lot of people are on, I think a lot of participants, you know, they already put their lives on the line to participate in this action, whether that was a hunger strike or a a work stoppage or something like an uprising. I think a lot of these people want to get their stories out. And I think they take an additional risk by putting, by, by calling one of us at Perilous or another journalist or like a local activist organization. A lot of our connections, we're a small collective. So a lot of connections are through like local support groups that we'll reach out to. Um, I think these prisoner participants, like they, they're, they're like that the ones that do interviews, they're doubly at risk in a way. They're like, if they participated in the rebellion at the facility, then they're at risk for repression. If they do an interview after, then they're doubly at risk for the repression. And so for me, I mean, this is a very, this is really inspiring. This is why I'm involved in, in prisoner work is it, um, being inspired by the bravery of these people. And yeah, so that's I mean that's really that's really one of the sentiments behind the whole project and the report is that you're getting at, you're asking about uh you know the sort of difficulties of this and it's like yeah it's really scary for these people they're putting a lot at risk and they deserve to have their voices heard because of that. The report states that a healthcare system that treats health as a commodity in the market rather than as a human right exposes itself to vulnerabilities created by the dissonance between the goal of public health and the requirement of profit. This dissonance is even more pronounced within carceral environments where medical neglect was already rampant before the pandemic, and as the UN put it, distancing measures are almost impossible. How does profit affect healthcare in prison prior to the virus? How how did profit affect the way that prison healthcare can can respond to a pandemic? What what was its state prior to the pandemic, and how was that system prepared or unprepared for a pandemic? Yeah, I uh, I think it's 
it it plays out differently because the system when we talk about like the system of incarceration we could just easily talk about the systems of incarceration um not to get lost in the weeds here but just like there's state prisons there are county jails there's ice detention centers there's federal prisons that lock up u.s citizens there's federal prisons uh federal prisons that lock up people who aren't u.s citizens so I, I think there's all these different systems. I can only really speak about the ones I'm most familiar with, which would be the Michigan state prison system, which is by basically any measure totally unprepared for, for something like this pandemic. And uh, for, for starters, it's just one example. It's been operating at like basically double capacity for decades. So when we say something like there's like social distancing is impossible in these facilities, like where that's not that's that's not just a, a claim out of nowhere. It's like these there's four there's eight, eight men or eight prisoners sleeping in a, in a four men cube. So uh, yeah, so I think and I, I, to relate it to profit, I mean this is a I think what the state does, the state in general, but also the state of Michigan. I guess you've been focusing on on your show. It's, I, I mean. Definitely feels like a crisis point has been reached here in a lot of different ways. Um, they're trying to literally balance a budget. And one of the ways that they're doing that is cramming people into these cubicles. And then when the, when the, when the virus hits one of these facilities, um, even if the warden <laughs> really, really, really wanted to, uh, like stop the spread and save prisoners' lives and so on and so forth, which they which they don't. That's not that's not the case. But if they did, it, there's also, there's almost this impossibility to it, unless prisoners are getting released. And that's what so, I mean. The the state is and and this is all related because you know COVID has not only brought uh, this pandemic but this economic crisis. And now the state is trying to like you know balance his budget here or whatever, you know, pass his budget, it's trying to figure out what to do with this like huge costly prison system. And, and one of the ways it plays out is, I mean, basically it's, they can just, you know, the, they can write off like prisoners health and lives basically, you know, they can cram them into cubes. They cannot give them health care. Um, they can. Yeah. So I, I think, I think when we talk about like, there's already like, it's been overcrowded here since before the pandemic and the pandemic hits and it's like, you know, Tinder ready for a spark and hits one of these facilities just recently, um, about an hour north of here, a central Michigan correctional facility. Uh, it jumped from four positive cases to now 1,500 cases at a facility of 2,600 people just in the past two weeks. So, yeah. So, and, and I think this all goes back to this. this isn't just to like the inept wardens, but I, I mean, I think the wardens are not doing it. They, I think they don't care about prisoners also, but it's it's set up for decades now, being overcrowded, not having adequate health care in there, and a series of other, like, basically more structural issues. So does the pandemic then mean decarceration? Because a lot of these facilities are now uh, letting people out of detention because of the pandemic. You mentioned the Central Michigan uh, facility, uh, correctional facility that's up by Central Michigan University. Central Michigan University recently had to clo- close their campus because they can't even find substitute teachers to fill in for the teachers who either don't want to report to work or have become infected themselves. So do you know to what degree the sustainability of the prison system is when there's going to be more and more demand for essential workers for prison? 
prison guards, for people to be working at these prisons? Are they having the same kind of challenges that the education system is having in getting the frontline workers to facilitate incarceration? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it is absolutely a crisis. Again, just the the, the report on, on PerilousConnell.com is focused on you know the, these rebellions all over the U.S. and Canada, um, and we, and but just to focus back on Michigan uh, for this for a moment is uh, I mean there's like a thousand person shortage of of uh, guards for and other staff for the Michigan Department of Corrections because I mean not only are guards and other staff getting sick they're quitting um and so the, the, these facilities are always on lockdown and so that uh be, and that's that's related in part to this labor shortage where now prisoners don't have access to the yard they don't have access to the law library because it takes more staff to keep all these things open basically so and the guardian here i mean they're they're demanding the resignation of the head of the Department of Corrections, Heidi Washington. So, and at the same time, there's, I mean, the in the report we put out, there's a, a few events in Michigan here. One actually at this federal prison um, that, uh, did, uh, that incarcerates uh, basically non-citizens and some at, uh, some at other facilities. And these rebellions have continued uh, after the scope of the report, which ends in June. Um, and so it's, this is moment here where there's this labor shortage, there's this economic and budget crisis all related to the pandemic, there's prisoners organizing, um, and there's been a few riots, there's been a few like hunger strikes, and uh, I mean, it, it makes sense that, that guards are quitting the, working for the Department of Corrections. I mean, this is, this is like a terrible crisis. I mean, if prisoners could quit being prisoners, I'm sure many, many would also <laughs> take, that, take up that offer, but unfortunately... That's not how it goes. And I think what's, I mean, it, 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 the pandemic is not under control in any way. And, and it is literally killing people today inside Michigan prisons. And um, it really feels like this, it's boiling over here. And, and I, I think that's one of the usefulnesses of the report. We, what, what, something I hope is useful about it is we really try to look closely at, these, at this first, the first wave, as they say, which the first wave never really left the Michigan prison system. It just moved around to different facilities. But, um, because I mean, these are, these are prisoners are inventing tactics and also outside supporters are like, and you know, the car caravans basically emerged right after these first two hunger strikes you mentioned at the beginning of the interview. Um, so yeah, I mean, this stuff is still here and, and prisoners are still organizing. There's still rebellions popping off around the country related to COVID and, yeah, so I mean, I think I think the, it, it is worth studying this first this first wave of prisoner resistance because it's still going on, and hopefully we can uh, we can actually yeah. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned decarceration. I think I think that's the single. I mean, from a policy perspective or or whatever, like I think that's the single best thing that the state can do is is like have the prison population like in the next month. That's something they could do um, through through uh, different initiatives and. That would go. That would go a long way. I mean, I think in the long run, this is like uh, not a sustainable system in any way. But in this immediate crisis moment, yeah, like people need to get people need to be released, like today. Is there and, and, and all this? 
Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, is there any evidence, because, you know, this is what people are going to be saying on Fox News, That not that I want to frame everything by Fox News viewers, but they're going to be saying that decarceration means more crime. Is there any evidence that decarceration necessarily means an increase in uptick in crime in the community? Uh, I mean, sure, there's evidence, but like that that's not good evidence. But, I mean, it's like Fox News evidence or whatever. <laughs> I mean, people have been arguing about this since, yeah, there's been like ac- academics in quotes or whatever since the 70s arguing that point. I, I don't, it's not actually, I don't think it's actually factually true in any any way. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I want to like acknowledge that there's just like been this ideological like battle since the 70s in which uh, it's a bipartisan thing that I mentioned that people have been arguing that point exactly, but it's not true. The crime rate so-called crime rate will go up and down it is not related to the rate of incarceration at all it's not related to the expansion of the prison system it's like if if we like look at the way that like incarceration has increased since the 70s and like that that logic should mean that like the crime like crime has gone down to like nothing because like the size of the prison system and the the terror of incarceration that affects all these layers of society if we follow that logic, then like there should be no crime because of the size of the system. And it's, I mean, the, that, that logic doesn't actually hold in any meaningful way, even though it will still be argued by, you know, right wing and fascist so-called intellectuals or something. <laughs> so hosts of Fox News. Uh, the report also states uh, the state with the highest frequency of events, uh, process events, was Louisiana, prison protest events. Eleven distinct events occurred there within the time frame of the study. Um, and then you mentioned that six of these events were at immigrant detention centers. All six of these detention centers are operated by private companies, four operated by Geo Group, and two operated by LaSalle Management Corporation. So what causes protests more, ICE's presence, or is it the presence of privatization within ICE? Yeah, um... And uh, not to not to just dodge it totally, but I think the I think there's a large point that is the uh, the these rebellions are happening at all types of facilities. Okay, so like like all like public, private, state, local, federal. Um, but the point about about specifically uh, Louisiana, I think one of the most interesting interesting in a bad way bits about it is that there was this rapid increase of these private ICE facilities under the Trump administration. Um, so I'll, I'll, like many places, like that federal prison I mentioned in Michigan opened um, under the uh, Trump administration. That wouldn't, like Obama's, you know, famously ended this like private prison contract for, for the Federal Bureau of Prisons during his term. Uh, and Trump, uh, you know, retracted that. So, and in Louisiana, as you brought up, like there's a, there was this, like these were all open in the past four years or not all of them, but a handful of them were opened in the past four years of, under Trump. Um, and that's just basically just a more like sympathetic, you know, federal prison system and to these contracts with private companies, of which Geo Group was one of the biggest and Core Civic and LaSalle is a little bit smaller, but these are all com- like private corporations that uh, operate prisons. As far as like, this this is a sort of a debate, I guess, like of like our private prisons, like so much worse. 
I think it's um I think it's a hard question to answer. I think in our report, one thing we point out is that out of those rebellions you just talked about, uh, most of them, most of these hunger strikes, which these are not like riots, these are hung, these are hunger strikes or like little protests or something. They were attacked with with stuff like pepper spray and um, that there seems to be that like there's there's some higher relation there of using weapons against these protests um, at these private facilities in Louisiana. But um, again, there's also a lot of rebellions at, at so-called public prisons. Um, and I, and I, it's, I think it's just a tricky relation. It's like, we don't, we don't want to fall on this logic of like, things are so much worse at private prisons or uh, we just want this, the state to run everything because the state is also killing people and also attacking like protesting prisoners uh, even if it's not a private corporation. Uh, yeah. You uh, just got more questions for you. Uh, the report states that uh, seven of these 16 large events occurred at privately operated facilities. Why do private facilities lead to uprisings? Does cost cutting cause protest? Because what we're going to be seeing, unfortunately, within the Biden administration, there's a real potential for cost cutting in order to balance budgets due, caused by paying people money that was desperately needed during the pandemic. And I'm concerned about more cost cutting at prisons. Do you think there's going to be more cost cutting at prisons? And will this inevitably lead to more prison uprisings? Uh, yeah, I think I think the start of the, the answer to the last part of your question, I think, yeah, the, the riots will continue until there are no prisons. I mean, this, this, the, the system is set up that is going to crunch people. And as I mentioned, the guards will feel some of that, but it really come down to, to, to prisoners. And I think these, whether that's the, the state government or the federal government, like cutting costs and overcrowding and cutting services and uh, programming and yard time and healthcare, or whether it's a private company doing it. I think the effect is the same. Yeah, I mean, I think there are step, there. Are, I'm not trying to gloss over that in some cases, as private companies, there's you know for sure less oversight. They can um, maybe there's more brutality in these in that in the case of Louisiana. That's what we found in our report. But um, I think it's if even if the 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 public prisons are there's going to be rebellions in public prisons too. I mean, like for actually in our, another part of our report. Was, we try to, it's kind of tricky right, to get into like this sort of wordplay, but like we, we want to think about some of these events as uprisings because of their size, because of their scope, because there's property destruction, um, things like this. Um, we counted 24 during the first 90 days of the COVID crisis in prisons. And I mean, 87% of these were at uh, public prisons or whatever, prisons not operated by private corporations. But the sort of cost-cutting thing you're talking about, it's not just – so there's private corporations that, like, operate entire facilities like GeoGroup. But there's also, like, private contractors that provide uh, food services, for instance, or something like – like, a different sort of services to the facility. And uh, these companies are also terrible, serve food with maggots in it, like, whatever – the worst thing you can imagine, they've done it. And um, – but uh, then, I mean, in Michigan, actually, we had these private companies serving food to the state prisoners, and then uh, there was all this controversy, and then the, the state was like, all right, we'll take over the food services instead, 
And you hear from people inside that it's like, it's literally the sages hire the same people. It's the exact same thing. In some cases it was worse because then the, then uh, the state is going to investigate the state service and find no wrongdoing. So it, it's, I think it's just a mixed bag. I think, but I think the larger point is that um, whatever measures different governments, different federal government, local governments are taking to try to operate these facilities at their core, they're, they're not sustainable, and the humans that are locked up inside them know that, and they, and they and they're going to keep acting, and they're going to keep fighting, and uh, we're at Perilous. Hopefully, going to try to keep highlighting it because we think it's important, and we think that there's, that yeah, it's it's boiling over here. It's boiling over here in Michigan. It's boiling over everywhere, and um, we should pay attention to what these prisoners are doing. And this this kind of crowding isn't sustainable when we have a disease that's so easily transmitted. So it's not sustainable at all. This kind of the kind of prison system that we do have. You were talking about violence and property destruction that happens during these uprisings. Does that work in getting demands fulfilled? You mentioned in, your, in the study about how most places there that there are a lot of places that have repeated protests and it would uh, that kind of implies to me that the first protest didn't work and they need to have a second protest in order to get any of their demands met does violence does property destruction work at getting demands met (laughs) um it's a a, i think i think that would be hard to answer again definitively but i think that if we think of it in the way, because then it's like, oh, we just break something, you get a demand with that. Well, that, I don't think it's that simple. I think, I I think that the people organizing these events though are 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 thinking carefully. I mean, and thinking strategically. And I think in some cases, as you said, there's multiple events. Like maybe there's a there is this like sort of escalation in a single facility where maybe the first demo was something like a hunger strike and then, and then that didn't work. And then, uh, you know, the warden promises stuff goes back on his promise. And then uh, a month later, there's a big riot. Okay. That that's for sure present in our report, that sort of escalation. Um, but I, I think in some other cases, um, I think, I think like the, the options inside are really limited, not only because of the sort of censorship we already talked about, but because like, because then it's like a hunger strike kind of, uh, you know, it's like it's supposed to evoke sympathy. Outside supporters are supposed to hear about it. The media is supposed to get the word out. But if that if that that might not be possible at some of these facilities, and what like we'll actually get a story. Well, you know, maybe setting something on fire will actually get the word out because then you know then the maybe they have to call in like a riot squad and then the the media will hear about it and then some prisoner can actually be like, yeah, they're like purposefully spreading the virus in here. Um, so I just think that uh, I think it's a mixed bag. I think sometimes people are winning with stuff like these these protests and hunger strikes and the sort of nonviolent thing, listed demands, very organized in this way. That's for sure in the report, that sort of thing. And also these events where like people are just going to set something on fire, or people are just going to escape. They're just going to seize seize the moment and jump over the fence. And there was a there was a huge number of like like so-called successful escape attempts, which we mean that people like got outside the walls and were like on the run for some amount of time. Um, I mean, I, 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 like, I think, I think it's a mixed bag. And I think, I think because of the diversity of, of the situations everywhere, like I think prisoners are going, are choosing stuff that makes sense for, for them. And sometimes that does look like property destruction. And in those cases, maybe that's the only way they see uh, uh, of getting their, getting word out about how bad it is inside there. 
about getting attention. And you tell this story at one point, uh, a news story that I did not know about, about prisoners who are threatening to commit suicide, threatening to hang themselves at the prisons in order to get the health care that they need. You would think that this kind of news story, that that kind of sensational video, that kind of footage would make it on the nightly news. Somebody who is threatening to hang themselves at a prison, making a speech about how they need health care inside the prison walls. You would think that that would be one of the top stories on the media every night just because of the, I mean, the cynical nature of media when it comes to trying to get an audience and the sensational uh, sensationalism of it. You'd think that even that cynicism would bring those people to actually covering that story, but they don't. So there's so much that is happening right now, and we have absolutely no idea. And this keeps happening within prisons around the United States. Duncan, I've got one last question for you. We have been speaking with writer and researcher at Perilous, a chronicle of prisoner unrest, Duncan Tarr. Duncan has been on today to discuss the Perilous analysis. First 90 days of prisoner resistance to COVID-19 report on events, data, and trends. You can find out more about Perilous at PerilousChronicle.com, and you can follow Perilous on Twitter at Perilous Prisons. Duncan was on this cell back in March of last year when we spoke with him and Noor Usabah about their Commune Mag article, The End of the Line, on the Northern Midwest crumbling pipeline infrastructure. You can find that conversation at ThisIsHell.com when you search on Duncan's last name. That's Tar, T-A-R-R, if you, you may or may not remember, but our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. The report states, as the weaknesses of prioritizing profit over health meet with the weaknesses of a society organized around punishment rather than justice, it is important to study the resistance of those attempting to live their lives while trapped at the collision point of these two historical trajectories punishment rather than justice. But many, Duncan, as you know, view punishment as justice. Is punishment justice? And if not, why not? Why isn't it morally correct and fair to punish one, someone, for breaking the law? Uh, Truly a question from hell. Um, I think that uh, there's a thesis proposed by lots of prison abolitionists that uh, prisons don't end violence. They actually perpetuate violence. And I think that when we think about what it means to break the law, what it means to be a criminal, we can't understand that abstract. We can't understand that just from based on this purely personal choice. Like I'm going to choose to do something wrong today because I think that people hurt, hurt other people who have been hurt themselves And I think that if we don't address the root causes of stuff like crimes against property, how do we like we how we can't think of that without thinking about capitalism, crimes against all the sort of like things we think of as crime as wrong in our society. We also we they don't come from nothing. They don't come just from personal choices. And I think if we just put people in cells and torture them with solitary confinement, um. And then when they try to rebel and raise issues, then like attack them with pepper spray and rubber bullets, then I think that we're, our society is causing more violence. It's causing more trauma. It's causing more harm. And it's perpetuating a system in which those people, people that are hurt are going to hurt other people. People that are have nothing in society are going to try to do whatever they can to survive. And I mean, I think if we think about what justice might look like, Whatever system of punishment we're doing now is just causing 
more harm. It's causing more violence. And then prisons are not separate from society. They're part of our society. These people get out. Guards are traumatized at their work. They get out of their job. And, like, these things are all connected, basically. And I, I don't think that if, if we just keep hurting people, that we're just, we're just, like, we're spreading violence and we're, we're, we're perpetuating system that prisons are claiming to, to solve. Duncan, that was a spectacular answer to the question from hell. Congratulations, sir. Uh, it was great talking to you again, having you back on the show. Again, you can find our past interview with Duncan from last year at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on the name TAR. We're going to be bugging you in the future, you know, because this is an amazing report. Your organiza- the organization you're working with now is just really fantastic. So I will be irritating you in the future to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for starting off our week with a really fantastic can- conversation, Duncan, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Daphne, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. Oh, your mic's not on. (laughs) At least we figured it out this time. (laughs) This week's question from hell is, what are you trying really hard to not think about? And we have a lot of answers. Awesome. Krimsky K says, weasels. Egren S, the extra 15 pounds of turkey my wife and I now have to eat. (laughs) Jeff Jeff (laughs) says, uh, what I'm going to wear to the ball. Love it. (laughs) Fabio L, my debt. Lance P, the fact that most of our lives are wasted on trying to convince ourselves that we aren't wasting our lives. Okay, that's a very <laughs> nihilistic approach, but very nice. Again, uh, what are you trying really hard to not think about? Mm-hmm. Garrett S., the game. Andrew P., that this is hell. Stephen Stephen S., this is hell. Oh, <laughs> someone beat someone. Uh, Pete, that the elephant in the room. <laughs> what are we really trying hard not to think about? The elephant in the room? That's very good. John T. Everything. Zen AF. Dan K. The elephant in my room. <laughs> Mark A. Um, actually, Mark S. Okay. That every piece of plastic used in your giant Christmas decorations contains the liquefied bodies of trillions of tiny plankton and algae who lived and died in vast ancient antediluvian oceans for trillions upon millions of years. Their countless infinitesimal souls cry through the void of history for the great sleeping Cthulhu to awaken and avenge the outrage committed by thoughtless humans who have disturbed their eternal rest. No wonder you're trying not to think about that. That sounds horrible. (laughs) Meredith A. Being buried alive. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Jeremy T. The fact that my 12-year-old self wondering... Um, sorry. Uh, wondering if there was more to life than the monotony of an infinitely unfulfilling paper chase was prophetically accurate some 20 years later, <laughs> and that my search for a greater meaning, while well, everything to me is a joke to some. Wow. Yikes. Jason F., the abyss, but it keeps staring at me. <laughs> Bongo C., I'm trying not to think about how they aren't making yardsticks any longer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I didn't know that was the case. Uh, What are you trying really hard not to think about? Andy F. Thinking? 
Lisa B, the very thing I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not. Wally uh, R, my personal war on forced Christmas music. Mark C, that the current administration will actually be successful in overturning the election. What are you trying really hard not to think about? Michael D, the original use of Lysol and chainsaws and the origin of vanilla flavoring. <laughs> Don't want to look it up. Uh, Warren L, there is no try, only do. Um, Debs B, the game. Ronaldo, the microscopic eight-legged mites that live on all our faces, no matter how much we wash. Harmless, supposedly, but disgusting. If you think that's disgusting, look into vanilla flavoring. It's even worse. <laughs> They lay their eggs in our pores. <laughs> Yikes. Um, Bradley R., the demon on my butt that tries to bring me down and put me in a hell rage. <laughs> nice reference. Uh, that's it. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. What are you really trying <laughs> trying really hard not to think about? What are you trying really hard to not think about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell winner cap. We will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell at the end of Wednesday's show this week. Wednesdays, as we have no show on Thursday. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But again, we have to have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, Rotten history on November 23rd, 1972, 48 years ago today, Monday, the Soviet Union's last attempt to send cosmonauts to the moon went down in flames as its enormous N1 rocket booster exploded less than two minutes after launch. And I had no idea the Soviets attempted to get to the moon. No clue whatsoever. The N1 rocket was intended to be the Soviet answer to the American Saturn V rocket, the N1, had been designed to propel a two-man Soyuz spacecraft into lunar orbit, along with a tiny landing craft in which one cosmonaut would land on the moon, jump out for one minute to plant a flag, grab some rocks, and then blast the hell out of there. But like many elements of the USSR's money-starved space program, the N-1 rocket was doomed by technological shortcomings Soviet engineers could not yet build really big rockets, so instead they strapped together 30 smaller ones, which made the N-1 a colossal contraption of nightmarish complexity that never made it into space. Because if you can't build a big enough rocket to get to the moon, then why not just strap a whole bunch of tiny ones to get together? It's like needing a quarter stick for the job and instead using a brick of firecrackers. They're basically the same thing. Not really. What can go wrong? After this fourth and last launch failure, Kremlin leaders canceled the Soviet moon landing and its details remained secret until shortly before the USSR's demise in 1991. Secret Soviet pointless missions in the waning days of the Soviet Union to boost morale, like landing a Russian on the moon, turning deadly. That sounds about right. Hey, has President Trump announced a last-minute moon landing yet? In Rotten History, November 27th in the year 602 A.C.E., 1,418 years ago this Friday, and I know I'll be celebrating, in Constantinople, the Byzantine Roman Emperor Flavius Tiberius Mauritius, known to historians as Maurice, met his end in an unusual way. Born and raised in Asia Minor, or what is now Turkey, Maurice had established 
himself as an outstanding military leader, expanding the Byzantine imperial reach with successful campaigns in the Caucasus, the Balkans, and northern Italy. But his army was constantly strapped for cash, and when Maurice ordered a winter offensive into Central Europe, the soldiers mutinied, revealing fissures in the Roman military-industrial Senate complex. Meanwhile, food shortages in Constantinople were causing riots there. Maurice tried to escape Constantinople but was captured along with five of his sons. He was forced to watch as the five sons had their heads chopped off, and then he too was beheaded. His wife and three daughters were forced into a convent, but a few years later they were accused of conspiring against the brutality and the brutally incompetent new emperor Flavius Phocas, and they too were executed. Flavius Phocas himself was executed a few years later than that, in the year 610, so what, seven years later? Look, I knew this, I know this is rotten history, but either there were a lot of beheadings back in the day, or historians were obsessed with chronicling who had their heads chopped off, why and when. So I'm really not certain if historians were wise scholars or just really creepy dudes. Finally, in Rotten History, November 27th, 1835, 185 years ago this Friday, and I'm certain another event I will be honoring this holiday weekend, James Pratt and John Smith became the last two men in England to be executed for what was then called the crime of sodomy, and is now known as the pastime of sodomy, and no, I guess I won't be celebrating this moment in history this weekend. Pratt and Smith, both married men in their 30s, were acquaintances of William Bonill, an older man who rented a room in the Southwark district of London. Bonill's landlord had noticed that Bonill was frequently visited by men who arrived in Paris, and he had become suspicious. The landlord managed to climb up to an access point outside the building, where he could look into Bonill's room through a window, perv. After seeing that Bonill was absent, he brought his wife to an inner hallway where they both peered into the room through a keyhole. And as they both later testified in court, saw Pratt and Smith having sex, so both the landlord and his wife were peeping toms. Should have been a crime. It's very gross. Landlord called police because, of course, a couple of dudes are having sex. Let me call police who arrived just as Bonil was returning to the apartment. The cops arrested Bonil along with Pratt and Smith. In the ensuing trial, the police magistrate, who was both a cousin and a brother-in-law of Charles Darwin, recommended against the death penalty, noting that it was disproportionately applied to people of lower income. Who knew Charles Darwin's cousin and brother-in-law would have a view of justice that had evolved. And wait a second, his cousin and his brother-in-law? What the hell is going on at the Darwin household? The young journalist Charles Dickens also published a sympathetic portrait of the defendants, but Pratt and Smith were finally hanged before a noisy crowd in front of Newgate Prison. Bonil, convicted as an accessory to the crime, was deported to a penal colony in Australia, where he died six years later. Because nothing says justice like killing people for having sex. That's Rotten History and this is Hell. Daphne, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time, here at thisishell.com. Um, Tuesday is 
Teppo Eskelinen with The Revival of Political Imagination, Utopia as Methodology. And on Wednesday, we're going to have Jeff Dorchin delivering a moment of truth. Thursday, no show this week, but we are doing a Patreon podcast on Friday, so you can subscribe to that at patreon.com slash thisishell. And this Friday, I will be declaring my war on every freaking holiday I can. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing... Today's show and every Monday's show is Daphne Augustin. Thank you very much, Daphne, for being here. Also, thanks to our guest, Darren, oh my God, uh, Darren Duncantar. I have Darren written down here for whatever reason. Thanks to writer and researcher at Perilous uh, Chronicle of Prisoner Unrest, Duncan Tarr. Duncan has, was on today to discuss the Perilous Analysis, First 90 Days of Prisoner Resistance to COVID-19, Report on Events, Data, and Trends, which you can find right now by going to PerilousChronicle.com. And you can follow Perilous on Twitter at Perilous Prisons. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest, and thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron and Richard for all the work that they have done behind the scenes and the additional work that Richard is now doing producing the show. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.